0: Hello friends and welcome to Create Connect Cast number three in March 2021. Today we are talking with Danny. Danny is a veteran of Afghanistan, a husband, and a soon to be father. In today's episode, we will be discussing allergies, motivation to fight, and how learning a new perspective might be make you see your enemies differently. I hope you enjoy. Welcome to Create Connect Cast, and today we got Danny with us. How you doing, Danny? Um, well, how are you? I could complain, but I'll choose not to. No, I'm just <laughs> kidding. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty content. Good. Good. I'm glad to hear that. Uh, um, so as an opening topic, I was thinking about it, and I was like, Danny really loves kombucha um like it's kind of it's a little bit scary how much kombucha you might you might drink uh on on a daily basis or maybe just on certain days so i was wondering if you could uh just enlighten me a little bit as to how did you get so into kombucha um and what what like what does kombucha do for you that you'd probably drink it more than
1: water <laughs> okay well um i'll definitely go through it i i think i might uh disappoint you towards the end but uh, uh okay well i'm used to that <laughs> you know you know what you might i don't know we'll see we'll see how it goes you might get more excited by this but dude i'm, yeah. I'm a millennial i'm so used to disappointment it's okay, okay good. good um so <laughs> so yeah basically uh i grew up with allergies uh pretty horrible allergies. Um. I used to come home with, my my mom used to always tell me I'd come home with tiger stripes from school because I'd play four square all day and uh, my hands would get super dirty. And then I I always had sinus issues. And so I would, you know, take my dirty hands and wipe them across my face and end up with uh, tiger stripes whenever I came home. So, uh, yeah, so that was pretty much my whole life. And as you know, and I'm sure we'll get into, I was also in the army for a while. And throughout my time in the army, they actually got a lot worse. And I, uh, looking back on it, attribute that mostly to uh, the, the amount of antibiotics um, I was subjected to. Uh, so, you know, the anti-malaria pills that we had to take in Korea um, and Iraq uh, were essentially antibiotics. And so, yeah, so um, they'd gotten so bad that when I'd gotten out of the army, I got to the point where I was taking the the tiny little one a day allergy pills and anybody who has allergies knows exactly what I'm talking about. The little Claritins, uh, that say on the back do not take more than one a day. Well, I was taking about three of those a day cause <laughs> oh
0: no. yeah.
1: And, uh, it's, it, they just, it still wasn't working, but I couldn't work. Um, I mean, I was still working, but you know, it was horrendous. Uh, I was dealing with customers at the time cause I was working at a little coffee shop. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was, it was pretty miserable. So, uh, i went and got a blood test at the VA and my results came back and they said, yeah, you have a few, uh, liver enzymes that are elevated. You might want to watch out for that. And so me being who I am, uh, went full bore on it and looked up anything I could do to help cleanse out my liver and kind of regenerate as much as I could. And, uh, so one of the things that came up was kombucha and it's been known to help cleanse people's livers. And, you know, there's no scientific data on this per se, but I was like, whatever, you know, I'll, I'll give it a shot. I work at a coffee shop that literally has kombucha on tap. And so I, I told myself, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do my own little science experiment. I'm going to drink a cup of this every day that I work for the next month. And then I'm going to go in and get my blood test and see what happens to my liver. And uh, so I, I did exactly that, a little overboard, even. Um, I, I drink definitely more than a cup a day. And, uh, yeah. So over that month, and I I think we were going into October at that time and October is notoriously like that. That's the month that, you know, allergies were almost year round, but you know, that was my death month. Um, and yeah, I came into October and I didn't even think about it. I just didn't have allergies. I just, my, my nose wasn't running all the time. My face wasn't itchy all the time. My eyes weren't watering all the time. And, uh, I just, I I didn't know what it was about. And so um, I actually didn't really think about it until probably a month even after that, it kind of dawned on me like, oh, wow, I I don't have allergies. Like what the heck's going on? And uh, yeah, so I started doing some more digging and um, I started learning about the gut microbiome and how important it is for uh, really just about everything um, overall, but in particular about uh, immunity and and, um, fighting off allergies and stuff like that. So Oh, huh, all right. Yeah, so I I attributed it to that, you know. Uh, you know, I don't have any documented evidence for that, but I'm I
0: can no, like- I mean it's a it's an anecdote to be sure. Like this can't be construed as medical advice, but it is sort of like your own personal experience with allergies and some sort of like alternative nutrition and you ended up uh curbing allergies in your personal experience, right?
1: Well, yeah, absolutely. And, and so, you know, fast forward to, to now even, um, I'm sure that m- uh, most people have heard of Rhonda Patrick by now, who's a, a PhD biologist. and uh, Okay, yeah. Yeah, so she, she interviews a lot of other scientists, and um, one of them is a couple. I can't remember their, their name, but uh, it, the couple, they're, they're married, and they're both biologists, and they specifically study the gut microbiome. Um, and it's relation to just overall health in general. I mean, everything. So from psychological health to, um, you know, overall immunity and everything. And so, uh, they, they talk, they talk a lot about, uh, stuff like that too. So, so more and more, this is, you know, these anecdotes that people have been talking about for so long are actually coming into mainstream science and there's actual data to start backing this up now. So it's pretty, Yeah. yeah, it's pretty interesting. I've heard that, uh, like a lot of your immune systems in your in your
0: gut, in like your digestive system, they've I've, they've pretty well documented that, um, as far as I'm aware.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I was talking to a buddy of mine um, that him and I had anatomy together, and he was telling me. I think he's doing he he still hasn't graduated yet, and he's getting ready to start um, uh, doing uh, what's it called SI, so supplemental instruction for anatomy. And he's saying that the upcoming semesters they're going to include uh, the gut microbiome as a new organ organ system at least. um so that was pretty interesting, yeah, I mean, it's huh. we've, we've come pretty far with it, so um so the disappointing thing might be that um where I was once making kombucha, I actually stopped making kombucha and uh, we, how could you? You're like a kombucha poser now. <laughs> well, I upgraded, so. Um, oh okay, never mind. I feel like take that back. Yeah, people that are still making kombucha are kind of like microbiome posers now. So, mm. um, <laughs> yeah, but I started making uh I started making milk kefir, and um, uh, there's a lot of you know there's a lot of anecdotal, and then also some uh some there's quite a bit of literature on on that as well. So um, yeah, it's pretty cool. Um, a little disappointing for some with the kombucha, but I really like the kefir. Okay, so basically,
0: the idea probiotics are good for you, folks, yeah. or they can be. Um, cool, awesome. And then uh, I did, I did pick up on you talking about, you know, some of the different uh, chemicals and and medications that you were pumped full of uh, as you were engaged with the military. Um, how how many years did you spend in the military? I believe the army, correct?
1: Yeah, yeah. So I did, I did uh, about six and a half years in total. Okay. My first three years, um, you know, besides basic and a deployment to Iraq, I was in the National Guard. So, for anybody that doesn't know, it's it's sort of a reserve. Well, it's definitely a reserve basis. It's a state-run entity, um, but that they gets called up to uh, active duty service to, and then that you know that goes under federal orders at that point. Um, so I did about three years with that. Uh, sorry, three and a half years with that, and I uh, ended up. Um, transferring over to full-time active duty for another three years. My first deployment was to Iraq, and I spent about eight or nine months there. I showed up a little late because I'd just gotten out of basic, and I got a call from, again, this is the National Guard, so I'm, you know, I'm back home. Um, I'm not reporting to a duty station or anything like that per se, and so I get a call from one of the headquarters guys uh, and he's like, Hey man, uh, you want to go to Iraq? (laughs) You know, I'm like, Oh yeah. I guess kind of like going to Cancun, right. Or or the Bahamas. (laughs) Well, you know, I was young and I was uh, I, you know, there was a reason that I'd signed up for the army in the first place. And so um, yeah, I said, yeah, I would love to. Um, I was, you know, I thought you'd never ask. So uh, yeah, I ended up in Iraq just a couple months later and, um, you know, came home from that, and again, it was you know the National Guard. So you're pretty much just home, other than your 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 monthly drill sessions, and then, um, you know, you get activated here and there. We got activated for the California wildfires and trained up for that. Never got really deployed for that. And then, uh, yeah, so you know, for for a long period of time there, I was just kind of doing my my reserve duty, um, and then that's when I decided that I wanted to go active duty full time, and. Uh, from there, you know, obviously things get a bit busier. Um, you know, I went straight to Korea and then I spent a year in Korea and then from there I got stationed in Texas and I, I think it was about six months later we were in Afghanistan. So it was pretty okay. quick turnaround. Yeah, it was a pretty quick turnaround for that. Okay. So
0: time spent overseas uh in like the six, six and a half years, maybe about half of that you're overseas. Yeah, roughly. I'd say roughly yeah. speaking. Okay. Um so Iraq or is it Iraq?
1: It's whatever you want to call it, my friend.
0: Okay. Well, I thought you might know. But anyway <laughs> in, who you're talking to. Okay. Uh like if you're talking to somebody local, yeah. how would they how would they say yeah, they're the country? Say, they're gonna say Iraq. Iraq. Yeah. Okay. So in Iraq, um, what was what was your experience there? Uh was it a lot of sitting around and waiting for things? Was it a lot of like hectic kind of scenarios was it what was it like to be in Iraq
1: yeah so um Iraq was a little different and it so this actually plays into why I ended up going active duty so you know I I'm, I'm coming in to the National Guard with this mindset of I'm going to go uh fight and be a war hero and then I'm going to come home and put my feet up and you know play with my medals, you know, and <laughs> pretty much just do that, you know, cause I, I don't want to deal with the daily nonsense. I just want to go be a, a war hero, hero and, and be Rambo and, and fight the good fight and come home and be done with it. So, uh, so I, I get to Iraq and, you know, I have all these grand aspirations and I'm a bit of an idealist. And um, so I, you know, I show up and turns out we're not really doing much there. You know, I, I got told that I was originally, so, you know, going back into that phone call, uh, asking me if I wanted to go to Iraq. Um, I believe the guy's exact words, uh, were you got to go replace a crispy. <laughs> and so, mm. yeah, so it, it, I, I, I may have butchered the, the sentence form, but he definitely said crispy. That definitely made its way into the, the conversation at one point. So
0: is a crispy somebody that got like really, uh, really tan in the sun or, uh, what does that mean?
1: Uh, yeah. That, so that that's going to be someone that got blown up. Um, by an IU Oh, band. yeah. Okay, but, so a little, a little less, a uh, little less recreational. <laughs> a little bit, yeah. yeah. Um, and so I get there and and come to find it, you know. So I'm going into it thinking, all right, these guys are in the fight, man. Like I'm, I'm gonna go get some. Like this is cool. Like this is what I signed up for. And you know, I get to go, quote unquote, fight for my country. And so I show up, and it turns out that that's not at all what's happening. Uh, you know, they they had lost one guy, unfortunately. Um, and, you know, regardless of the circumstances, that's always a horrible thing to happen uh, for obvious reasons. But yeah, so, you know, he, the guy hadn't actually died in combat operations. Uh, the, you know, they were out on a combat uh, sort of mission in a sense in a combat zone, but it, it ended up just being a, a rollover incident uh, where he was in the gunner's spirit and had. Uh, yeah, so, you know, he died due to the uh, the accident, but. Uh, yeah, so it was it was uh needless to say it was it was disappointing um for me getting there expecting you know the the guts and glory and all of that and and we were doing convoy operations so essentially we were escorting um semi-trucks uh that were being driven by local nationals and uh delivering various items to different bases and so you know from from one perspective I got to see a lot of Iraq which I guess is kind of cool, although it's mostly just a giant desert, <laughs> as, as most people imagine. Uh, so, you know, you see a lot of the same stuff, but, uh, you know, when, when you're going there and you're young and you're, you know, full of vigor and um, you want to go fight and take it to the enemy and you end up just kind of sitting in a truck all day, um, full body armor, sweating nonstop, uh, it was a little disappointing. And, and so, you know, I, I had kind of figured out at some point that that's the type of mission that the national guard does at least at that point in time, prior, prior missions, prior deployments for the national guard were uh, a bit more extensive um, and a bit more, quite a bit more uh, combat oriented. Um, However, they kind of tamped down on that to some degree later on in the war. So, so you're Uh, kind of more just like logistics, right? Yeah, basically.
0: Uh, Like you, you might as well just become a trucker.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, we had, yeah, we there so it it was it was still dangerous. I mean, we were going down IED Alley all the time and but yeah, it just it's one of those things where it's like, yeah, okay, IEDs are going off every day, but there are so many people on the road that your chances of the chances of you yourself getting hit are slim to none, you know. Um so, you know, cuz yeah, IEDs go off every day, one, they're not always hitting people because uh we had so much different technology and so many different tactics that it was actually hard to hit the trucks. Um they're pretty wide you know the highway was pretty wide and yeah so uh yeah I mean you know I'm I'm thankful to to be home and do all that and looking back on it I'm kind of glad that it wasn't as hectic as I wanted it to be but um you were like early 20s something like that yeah I actually had my 22nd birthday You, you
0: basically your logistics you're sort of transporting all this stuff guarding stuff keeping an eye on things you don't actually end up experiencing any sort of uh like IED incident uh, in, in like uh, personally,
1: no, I, we never got hit, uh, when I was there, we, there was a few things that took place, but, um, nothing that was nothing I really had to write home about. It was, it was pretty uneventful and I was, I was pretty bitter by the end of it from being honest. Um, obviously okay. fruitful, but yeah, at that, at that point in time in that mindset, I was, was not happy with my experience. So you're,
0: you're like saying there's not enough action here. So where could I go where I would get more action? And you're like, oh, I know someplace where everyone just stares at each other across a minefield, uh, the DMZ in Korea. Uh, something's bound to happen there,
1: right? Yeah. Well, the funny thing about that one is I was actually pretty bitter that I had, I had gotten that uh, assignment as well. So you didn't volunteer; you were assigned. No, I was assigned. So okay. Well, I get to Korea, and um, I, I had a decently high ASVAB score, and um, I, I get to this place. That's like the SAT for the military, correct? Yeah, exactly. So there's yeah. one, there's one score in particular that they look at, and it's your GT, and that's the one that's most closely uh, correlated uh, with actual IQ or an intelligence quotient. So it's it's your ability to to take in and process raw data, um, that isn't tied to your, uh, reading comprehension per se, although there is some of that in there. Um, and it's also uh, like problem solving things like that with, with novel, novel items, novel, uh, patterns and things like that, that you wouldn't see in a day to day. And so, um, so I'd, I'd gotten a decent score on that. And so with that, I, I show up and there's this one spot called the JSA. It's the joint security area. And that's, the furthest North you can get in terms of an army base in Korea at that time. So this is 2009. And so I, I get there and uh, come to find out basically what they do is, is like an MP job. So this military police. They do, they do sort of an MP security escort job. And I'm thinking yeah. I had not another security escort job. Right. So I get there and in essentially what you have to end up doing um, is you have to memorize 16 pages verbatim of basically just facts about the area and you got to know it in order because you're going to be giving that as a presentation to tourists and to generals and to whoever else comes up to visit the DMZ Um, you're going to go drive around in the DMZ uh, in certain designated places where it's you're allowed to be and you're going to give this spiel and so you know, again, so you became a
0: tour guide, so you went from a trucker to a tour
1: guide, is what you're saying. That's literally, yeah. So, that <laughs> usually the joke is like a glorified tour guide because I had some armor on, it was soft armor, uh, and then a pistol on my hip. And so, um, you know, this is again, I'm I want to go do combat stuff, like I know I did decent on the MCAT, I know I could have done literally any other job in the military that I wanted, but I chose infantry because I wanted to go fight, and so. Here I am, and so I, I show up in the sergeant major's office. And now, keep in mind, this is a really small unit. This is about uh, fifty Americans up there in total, and uh, you would really only see about twenty of them on a regular basis. The other ones are kind of were were somewhat scattered about. And so um, I I show up in the sergeant major's office, and you know he's asking me this and that. And I just I tried to play dumb. I told him like, "Sergeant Sergeant Major, I I don't think I can memorize all this. I'm I'm just I'm not very good at memorizing." And he looked down and he looked back up and he said, you got a 118 GT, you can memorize this. And that was the end of it. And so, so I was like, dang it. So busted. Yeah. So, so, you know, there I was, you know, and looking back on it, ugh, man, I, I can't imagine a better duty station to be completely honest. Like it, it was amazing. I mean, I, I got to meet, um, the, uh, oh, what was it? Um, I, I got to meet some higher ups in government. Um, Robert Gates, uh, the honorable Robert Gates, who was the, uh, sec def at the time so you meet some higher-ups in government
0: you still have an itch to get into combat would you say that you can really trace that that desire back to anything in terms of like was there something in your family was there something in your past that really made you want to go fight i think it's it's definitely a a generational thing that every generation they want their fight uh they they want to be able to go out and do something that changes the world one way or another what do you think it was like military combat that there was like kind of the thing that that was appealing to you uh in that time
1: yeah that so i i mean just like with anything it's it's a combination of things i would say there's definitely some stuff i can point back to with my upbringing um and there's also just kind of personality traits you know uh, different personality types. Um, I tend to be a little more principled and, um, you know, it's when, when something needs to get done, you do it sort of thing. And, and you don't make excuses and, you know, there's always a like, Oh, well, you know, there's plenty of people out there that, that can go fight. Why do you need to go? It's like, well, because if I don't, then who, who else does, you know, it's, if everybody had that mindset, nobody would go. So, you know, that was always kind of my, my rebuttal to my mom or anybody else. But, uh, oh, so your mom didn't want you going. Oh yeah, of course. Yeah. I mean, she's a mom. So yeah, There was, you know, you know, I mean, dad wasn't like stoked on it, I, but he, you know, he understood a bit more. Um, and I think there was a, a level of pride with him. Do you have a history of any military service throughout your family? Yeah. My, so my dad actually served, but he was, you know, and, and this is by his own admission, a, an absolutely just terrible soldier. Uh, oh, okay. He, he, he was in his military intelligence and, uh, you know, he got demoted a bunch of times and, you know, he was just kind of a rebel. And, uh, yeah, but, but in terms of, you know, my motivation for going to, I, I grew up as sort of a, a softer, more sensitive, um, kind of feelings based kid, I guess, you know, I just, um, I, I like to think about things and, um, I was kind of quiet for the most part when I was younger. Uh, but I also had an older brother who five years older than me, a different dad, uh was not like that at all he was a rough guy he was gotten into a lot of fist fights and uh you know was was hanging out with all the uh the the quote unquote gangster type guys at school you know and uh so you know being a young kid just like any other i i wanted to be like my older brother and he definitely wanted me to be like him <laughs> so uh there was this uh sort of lifelong pursuit Um, up until at least a certain point more recently, but there was this lifelong pursuit of, of wanting to be a tough guy, which was not in my DNA. I mean, quite literally it was, you know, when, when someone needed protecting, I was willing to stand up and, and be strong in that. But in terms of just going out and just being a tough guy who liked to go out and rumble with people and, you know, be, be, be hard all the time as, as everybody would say, oh, you're hard, uh, you know that just wasn't me, but I, I tried my absolute best to be that. And, um, yeah, I, I think I, I didn't really, I wasn't able to prove myself when I was younger. Cause I was just kind of the small skinny kid who, like I said, really just did not like that, that sort of physical confrontation with people. Um, as much as I tried, I just, I hated it. And so I, I think, I, I think part of me felt that there was something to prove, you know, I needed to be able to prove that I could do it and that, you know, I was tough and could do all these things. And, um, you know, while while I may have been able to, but it, it just, it wasn't, it wasn't my natural personality <laughs> by by a long shot. So. So you were kind of letting uh, your, yourself be redefined
0: by what you maybe thought was something to aspire towards. And now looking back in retrospect, would you say that, uh ah, it just like doesn't, doesn't fit with who I am as a person. And it was like, I was sort of doing something that was outside of my character and nature.
1: Yeah. 100%. And, um, yeah, yeah, that's, you know, now, now it's the, the challenge of trying to fight off these, these habits that I've, I've built up through that, if that makes sense. So
0: like being like overtly, uh, hostile or being like, like almost like your fight flight mechanism is like a little bit too easy to, to flip.
1: Yeah. And and it's funny you say that because you you absolutely know that like if you ever want to pinpoint the guy who's doing exactly that, it's the guy that snaps the quickest, you know, because he's he's always on edge. He's always uncomfortable and he doesn't he doesn't exactly know how to gauge when he should and shouldn't be the tough guy. So he's just it's just on and off, on and off all the time. (laughs) So uh, that's kind of how I was. And that's definitely something that I have to. it's, it's easier for me to spark up than I would say it should be, you know, obviously being slow to anger is the ideal, but even beyond that, just as a normal person, I tend to spark up pretty quickly. And I, I think you just, residual. do you have any like strategies or, or anything that you've learned uh,
0: that's, that's helped you a little bit in, in terms of just being a little bit more stable or a little bit less inclined to fly off the handle?
1: yeah it's just a lot of it's just just breathe you know and and remember who you are and remember that i I really have nothing to prove to anyone and that's that's exactly what it comes down to and you know finding i think a big part of it too is is if you find yourself in a situation with someone like that that you're trying to uh coach through something like that would be to find out what they're actually good at find out what they can do and and get them going on that so that way they can find confidence in that so they don't have to define themselves Uh, based on, you know, some false, uh, you know, archaic standard of, you know, so like making kombucha or kefir, (laughs) yeah, exactly. Let them, let them prodge out on weird little bacterial projects. And, um, (laughs) yeah, yeah, basically. So, okay. Yeah. yeah. I I like that. Um, so
0: you have this sort of aspiration of what you want to be. You have this expectation of how you might find that or what you might experience, uh your expectations are probably completely dashed in that you don't really get what you thought you were looking for maybe you didn't even really want what you thought you wanted to look for um and then you find yourself out in afghanistan and afghanistan is probably a different ball game right
1: yeah it it absolutely was um it, and it was it's funny cuz it almost exact same scenario going into it as it was with Iraq where, you know, I show up to this unit and then we get called out into a formation of, I think there was like 10 of us maybe. And they said, Hey, uh, who wants to go to Afghanistan? Raise your hand. And of course my hand shot up through the roof. And so, uh, I got transferred to a different unit. And so, uh, yeah, so getting there and then, you know, we get to Afghanistan and, um, going in was, was weird. We had heard all sorts of horror stories about where we were going. Uh, there was about a, a roughly 33% casualty rate. Um, we get that sounds and, terrible. Well, yeah. And <laughs> we get there and find out that, you know, uh, it depends on how you define casualty exactly, whether it's just some guys will say, oh, it's guys that get injured. And then other guys will say, oh, it's guys that, you know, are actually killed. Uh, well, technically, casualty is injury or death. Is that fair? Yeah, that's yeah. So it's yeah, it you're, you're right, you are right. It's it's used amongst you know the lower level guys, it's used somewhat interchangeably. So, uh, anyway, either way, so come to find out, it's actually a lot higher when we get there because you know more than half the guys had purple hearts, uh, from shrapnel or whatever else. And so, uh, yeah, so we get into Wardak, the Wardak province, and you know, this is <laughs> this is what I wanted. And I did. I. I mean, I really did. I, I. Uh. You know. You talk about self-deception. I. I was fully convinced that it, it. was what I wanted. And. Um. Yeah. So I mean, I. You know, I could go on for days about Afghanistan. Afghanistan is. There's. There's so many. So many stories I can go to w- with this one. Um. It was. Uh. It was rough. Um. It had its down moments. You know where we really didn't do a whole lot. We were snowed in half the time. Um, and then it had its moments where it was just like, this is never going to stop. Like, it's just go, go, go. Uh, it's a pretty extreme climate, right? Yeah. I don't remember the exact elevation. Uh, I think even guessing would probably, um, yeah, it might've been like seven or 8,000 feet. It wasn't
0: okay. Yeah. And like relatively cold most of the time fluctuating between hot and cold. Like what was going on over there?
1: Yeah. So we got there a little bit later in the year. Uh, I want to say we got there in probably either September, or October. Uh, I was one of the first ones in. And so we, we get to our little middle of nowhere base camp and it was exactly that. It was middle of nowhere. We, we were on a Hill. Um, and the, the, the fencing around it, the barrier around it, uh, were what's called HESCO barriers, which are basically, uh, imagine if you took a chain link fence and you made like a, kind of a, a container out of it. Right. And then you line that container with a uh, brown paper bag and then you filled it with dirt. That's literally what a HESCO is. Um, and so we were lined with those. And, and if you were standing towards the center of the base, you could actually see right over those and they could see right in at you. So it was, you know, it was, yeah, it was this physical barrier that you couldn't just walk past, but if, <laughs> if you wanted to shoot over it, you definitely could. And it wouldn't have been yeah. an issue. you. Uh, so, so yeah, we, we show up there and um, first night out, uh, 16 hour mission there and back, um, just doing night patrols and yeah, it was, you know, nothing happened that night. Um, thankfully, but, uh, yeah. So, you know, we were doing our, our initial kind of introduction, um, with the, the, the outgoing unit, um, we were hanging out with them and they were giving us all their stories and, you know, telling us what was going on. And so, uh, yeah, it was, it was interesting for sure. Um, just
0: okay. Just, so, uh, a lot of patrols, would you say that there was a fair amount of like firefights or things of that nature?
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, it, it wasn't uh, quite what we were expecting. So, so the way Afghanistan works is uh, there's, and there's actually a documentary on this. And it's interesting because the documentary part of it, uh, I think it's like three different uh, groups that they're, they're bouncing between. One of the groups is actually in Wardak where we were uh, not okay. the exact location, but, uh, I can't recall the name, but I think I've seen that it's actually called fighting season. I'm pretty sure I, I would have to look okay. up to be sure, but I'm, I'm about 90% that it's called fighting season. And, and that's exactly what it is. There's, there's a, a literal fighting season that goes on. And so that's usually right around the springtime, uh, going like the to- snow thaws and everyone like comes out and yeah. Fights that's yeah that's exactly it so the the snow thaws and then all of the uh the the brush and everything all of the um uh, i don't remember what they grew out there if it was rice or wheat or something but they had all the step farms out there and so they would hide in in those in those bushes and you know set up complex ambushes and um you know they would set off ieds and then start shooting at you and or they would and When you say they, you were primarily engaging
0: with what the Taliban.
1: Yeah, it was primarily the Taliban. Uh, we we'd known that the Chechens were in that area as well, but I don't think we ever uh, came into contact with them. I think the unit after us did, though, because they described some of the tactics that they use, and it and it sounded like what we would have expected from the Chechens. And so the Chechens were like, think of think of Khabib. If if anybody uh, anybody listening knows UFC at all, think of Khabib. Uh, He's, it's that sort of terrain. It's actually not far from there. Um, I don't remember exactly the, the town for, that he's from. But so are these,
0: are these a people group that just don't really want any sort of like occupation or external force in
1: their area? They want an excuse to kill Americans. They travel from Chechnya to Afghanistan just to kill Americans. And so,
0: huh, what, are, what's
1: the, uh, what's the drive
0: behind that? Do you know
1: uh, Islam? mostly um, they're it's the call to jihad for them.
0: Um, okay. So that's how they see Islam and and they basically feel like they could, they can live out their, their view of the Quran by going and killing Westerners more or less.
1: Yeah. Essentially. Yeah. Killing the infidel and especially an infidel that's, that's invading, you know uh, what they believe is their land. And so, um, but yeah, they, they're a hard fighting group. They're smart. They are organized. Uh, they have equipment, um, and, you know, and, and when I say think of Khabib, that wasn't to say that Khabib some form of Taliban terror is, it, it, by no means. I mean, I'm actually a huge fan of his, but uh, we'll go so <laughs> to say the hard fighting mountainous terrain so, sort of, uh, you know, psychology that goes behind his his drive and everything. It's, it's very similar. Um, you just kind of see that a lot of those guys from that area end up being phenomenal UFC fighters. And uh, very similarly, the the Chechen, uh, Chech, uh, the people from Chechnya, the, the Chechens are, are great combat um, fighters. So.
0: so, they're really difficult adversaries to engage with. Was more your point? Yeah. And yeah. Who's who's funding uh, these people? Like, where do they get their equipment from, or are they getting paid salaries? Like, what's going on with that?
1: Yeah, that's actually a really good question. I I don't know. I knew more about the Taliban in that regard, and I know financially, uh, the Taliban does not tend to cross over with a lot of other groups. I know that uh, that was one of the issues that they had with, um, Osama bin Laden, uh, and Al Qaeda was that there was, there's was a lot of just, they, they actually had a lot of disagreements. Um, apparently they weren't like, they definitely weren't buddy, buddy, that's for sure. So that's kind of crazy then, right? So the reason that we're over there is
0: because we don't really want to see another terrorist attack on American soil, or that's what, you know, the common story that's been told to us is, and you're saying that the Taliban weren't really even allies of bin Laden.
1: So, yeah, so that that gets a little a little bit convoluted because there's there's different takes on it. So I read a book. Um, I read quite a few books when I was in Afghanistan. And I so I don't I can't pinpoint exactly which one because most of them were about the, in, in one form or another about the Taliban. Uh, so I, I think the book was actually called Taliban though. I'm pretty sure it was by a guy named James Ferguson and uh, really interesting book, but he was, so he was the first Western journalist to ever get in embedded with the Taliban. And, uh, they were actually huh. relatively close to us. He was in the chalk Valley and I'm pretty sure the guy that he was embedded with the the leader over there was the guy that we were looking for. And I think eventually, uh, killed, but, uh, Were you involved in that or that was just something that was generally done and then? Yeah, not not directly. Um, I don't know if it was an airstrike or if it was because we had special forces operating in our in our area as well. Um, It it could have been one or the other. Um, I just I know that he ended up getting killed at some point um, during the deployment. So uh, but yeah, so so basically, you know, I'll kind of make it short. But if if you know anything about um, uh, the Muslim culture and and some of their customs, there's there's one called Pashtun Wali and essentially what that states is that if if your enemy even comes to you seeking refuge you have to give it to him uh you know the the one stipulation there is you can ask them to surrender their arms and so that's essentially what osama bin laden did even though he he may not have been an enemy per se but you know he he also wasn't exactly an ally but you know it's when you have a common enemy of the united states or even just infidels who are you going to choose and so Does this courtesy extend
0: to other Muslims or does it technically extend to all people? I think it's supposed
1: to extend to all people. Yeah. I mean, I I think if, uh, if any, any fundamentalist, truly fundamentalist, uh, you know, staunch Muslim, if, if the U S were to lay down its arms and say, Hey, we want peace and we want refuge. They probably would because the thing you got to understand about the Taliban, the Taliban were somewhat of the saviors of Afghanistan uh, to some degree because, you know, of course, a lot of people didn't like them, but a lot of those people that didn't like the Taliban, uh, my interpreter for one, uh, we called him Dave, uh, he hated the Taliban. Uh, he, he wasn't really around during the, uh, the reign of the Mujahideen and the Mujahideen were were horrendous for Afghanistan. Um, you know, they were, they were setting up checkpoints and they were you know, beating the men and taking their money. And they were, uh, in some instances, raping the women, uh, at these checkpoints and, you know, they were just having, because, you know, they'd fought off the Soviets. They were the heroes. And so they, they took full advantage of that. Um, so the Taliban was started by someone who was in the Mujahideen originally, and he was fairly well known in that. And I'm pretty sure, uh, Talib means student. So, you know, more specifically, it would be student of the Quran. And so, you know they, they started off with grand aspirations. You know we wanted they they wanted to take out the Mujahideen and um, you know have have Afghanistan live under true Muslim law and and have the people that were watching over them to actually care for them. Um, you know, but with any fundal, fundamentalist movement, um, you get large degrees of legalism that take place, and then you know a lot of the people weren't too happy with that in Afghanistan. So they
0: don't like the restrictiveness of. Right of the new people that are in charge would you say that in some ways being somebody that did have those aspirations to go fight go be a hero of some sort live up to something that maybe was trying to uh live up to like your older brother or just some grand idea of what you thought your life should be do you feel like you maybe got to a point where you started to sort of even relate on some level to like what what these people had done in their own time in their own country?
1: Yeah, uh, I I hadn't really thought of it like that as much. I'm more and any any of my vet buddies that hear me say this are probably gonna hate me, and I guess that's okay. But um, I I'm I more kind of I, I really felt a little more akin to the Taliban, right? And <laughs> yeah, I, I going to like that. It, it sounds crazy, but I, I somewhat admired them for what they did. You know, um, they they chased out the the. True terrorists that you know, the, the Taliban never really committed, uh, as as far as I know anyway. And, um, I actually read this in one of those books, but the, the Taliban was was never responsible for any sort of terrorist attack, what we consider to be a terrorist attack outside of their own country. And even then, it's like okay, well, you know, within their own country, you got to kind of redefine things a bit. You know, is it really a terrorist attack? What are they trying to do? Uh, but but yeah, they 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 weren't responsible for any attacks um, on Americans, as far as I as far as I know, I mean, I, I could be wrong on that. Um, huh. They, they so they, they kind of got caught up in the, the crossfire
0: of a pretty massive, like geopolitical conflict that was going on. Yeah. I and... Oh, sorry. Yeah. Um, Interesting.
1: Yeah. But I, I,
0: have... I, I think it'd probably be fair to say, right. That a lot of people that you were serving with didn't necessarily know all the history of everything. So you, you kind of read into the history more and that's where you got a little bit of a, Different perspective, would that be fair?
1: Yeah, I, I don't think they cared. To be honest, with you. Yeah. those guys out there were out there for similar reasons to me, but um, didn't care for for truth in that sense. So, um, yeah, I <laughs> yeah we, we could go we could go pretty deep on that one. I don't know that we have the time for that, um, but yeah, it's it, it gets pretty interesting. It gets pretty hairy, but um,
0: just in terms of like the long standing history when you deal with like the Mujahideen, the Taliban. Uh, maybe even other parties coming into play. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's a mess, right? Like, there's a reason why we've been there for going on decades now. Um, I was actually reading to prepare for this, and I was shocked to learn that over 775,000 U.S. troops have been deployed out there to Afghanistan, this sort of treacherous, mountainous region the size of Texas. And I'm just like, how do you, how do you reach a resolution there? Doesn't doesn't seem like there really even is one, other than just kind of leave, which I guess in some ways we sort of have, because there's only about three or four thousand people left there right now.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's um, you know, I I've got my own theories for why we were there for so long. I I do know that at one point early on in the war that we had the Taliban cornered essentially, uh, and then there was an order given to let them go, and so you know,
0: I, I don't is this like all of their forces, just like a significant portion of them? Was it their leadership? Like, what do you mean by cornered?
1: Uh, it was a significant portion and it was, it was in uh more central Afghanistan area. And um, there was an order in it. Again, this has been, jeez oh, Louise, I don't remember. It's been a long time since I read this, but um, it, we, it, it left a significant impact on me, but uh, we, we'd had them cornered, and then the order was given to essentially just let them go. And so what they did was they they regrouped up north, and kind of you know gathered themselves up and, and came back down for the fight. And so then we ended up with this you know kind of long-standing war that we have, where you know we had private contractors. I remember in both Iraq and Afghanistan, we had private contractors out there doing essentially military jobs, except these guys were getting paid three hundred thousand dollars a piece uh, for the year there. So, uh, you know, when you could pay a soldier to do the same job, about 30,000. And, you know, if, if they end up dying, then you have to pay, you know, their, uh, not the Montgomery, uh, what am I looking for? Their, their life insurance. Um, just, you know,
0: Would you say that the economics of that was largely just like special interests, like power brokers in Washington, DC? Like, why do you think that was, that was such a thing?
1: Yeah, I think that's what it is, personally. Uh, we we can talk about it now. When I first come back, we weren't allowed to talk about this, but we had this... Uh, uh, anybody who lives near the southern border of the United States uh, has probably seen these, but it's called PTIDS. We call it the PTIDS. Uh, it's the Persistent Threat Detection System. And it's essentially this, this uh, blimp, right? This, this smaller blimp that... Gets uh, it's got a tether tied to it, and it gets and it's got cameras on it, and it gets sent up into the sky, and it's it's our eye in the sky, and uh, it was hugely expensive. The people to operate it were making a lot of money. Uh, we met those guys, and you know they would sit there on the cameras for twelve hour shifts and make, again, you know anywhere from two hundred fifty to I think like close to four hundred thousand dollars a year doing that job, and it wow it was kind of silly to me. Uh, I remember it was our, I think it was our first like full mission out for just us. And, and we were responding to a reported IED that, uh, p had caught. So it, it wasn't a complete bummer, but you know, it, uh, you know, we were out there and we were kind of looking around and, um, we found a little motorcycle. And so the Taliban used to ride around on these little, these little, you know, 200 CC motorcycles. And so we found one and we were just like, uh, you know, we were still kind of new to the area. We weren't sure exactly what we could get away with, but we were just like, why? why don't we just shoot the thing, you know, just disable it completely. And there's some debate like, well, it could be, you know, one of the civilians here may not be associated with the Taliban, whatever. And so of course, you know, if, if we could get away with it, we were going to do it. We we're like, I don't, I don't care. It's probably Taliban. So let's just destroy it. And so the the question came up, well, what about PTIDs? It might be able to see us. And I looked up and there was this white flashing light and I looked at my squad leader and I was like, well, I'm guessing that's where it is. And I'm pretty sure that if we can't see p it can't see us. So why don't we just wheel this thing behind this wall and do whatever we want? And uh, that, that was kind of the first thing to me was like, okay, if I figured that out in the first 10 minutes, guaranteed these Taliban guys know that. And the thing about it is because it's, it's this blimp system that goes up, it has to come down for any sort of inclement weather, right? And so the majority of our IEDs that, that we didn't know were out there guess when they popped up well when we had high winds or a lot of rain or snow or something like that or, or lightning within uh 20 miles and so was there a lot of like cloud cover and stuff that would make like
0: uh satellite imaging or something along those lines a little less viable or
1: uh yeah we i we just didn't really use satellite imaging uh we had a lot of um like the tech wasn't quite there yet kind of yeah I don't, I don't know honestly you you would probably know more about that than I would, we, we just had a lot of drones and stuff. And so maybe it was one of those like, well, we paid all this money for them. We're going to use them. You know, that, that, the military is notorious for that. You know, it's like, well, we paid all this money. We're going to use this. Well, it's an inferior product. doesn't matter. You know, this is, this is what we have. So this is what we're doing. Uh, so yeah, there was, there was a lot of that going on. Um, so, you know, you, you see things like that, you know, the mechanics that were working on the trucks there, you know, the military has mechanics um you know when i was in iraq uh we had a a downed truck that needed to get rescued and the the wrecking crew that came out they they come out on what's called wreckers we had the they were literally the exact same ones that we had uh military except instead of tan cuz ours were painted all that that desert tan color this one was painted black and it had civilians in it that were making gobs of money and you know you just you just start to ask yourself like man what you know we were still pulling security for these guys and, and it's it's you know, what's the purpose of this? Why are these guys out here making so much thinking money? Uh, you know, when you compare And like I I signed up for the wrong job, right? <laughs> well, yeah, there's obviously that going through your head. Um, especially since they're not even combatants, so that you know, they're not even if if bullets start to fly, they're not even expected to do anything except get inside their up armored vehicle and just hide while the guy yeah. goes out and fights. And so, you know, you gotta ask yourself, like, what in the world is going on? Why are these guys out here? And so you know, you let your imagination go a little bit with it. You you read enough books and you, you get some experience out there and you see what's going on. You start to put some stuff together and you realize that, you know, there's a lot of money to be made out here. Um, you know, if war is an economy, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And so, you know, you ask yourself, why are we in two different theaters of war for, you know, almost 20 years apiece? piece? Uh, you know, eh, you can come to some conclusions, I think. Uh, you know, there's really no reason for conventional soldiers to be out there, in my opinion. Uh, that was a, you know, we should have really only been in Afghanistan and it should have been a special operations, uh, war and that should have been pretty much it. Um, but so just like very specific missions,
0: very specific objectives, not try to occupy the entire
1: area. Yeah. You know, high value target rates. You know, you just you just do that. You go through and you find the guys you need to get and you get them. And, you know, if, if you play ball with the Taliban and say, hey, look, these guys bombed us, uh, you know, they if you sweeten the deal for them, they might be willing to help you out, at least more so than if you just come into their area and try to take over with all your troops. And then, you know, especially early on in the war, it's, you know, soldiers aren't known for being polite, you know, especially to the locals. Yeah that we all associate with 9-11 you know I, nobody cares about any of them at that point you know so
0: yeah everyone kind of got lumped in and sort of the nuance of the history there or the people groups that you were dealing with is sort of lost right because it's almost like they don't even really like uh bin laden much he sort of asked them to, for help they kind of reluctantly agree and then all of a sudden they have all these armed soldiers from the west like storming in into their their cities and their villages right right
1: yeah so you know that's again you know just a disclaimer this is my take on it this is based off of the books i've read the articles i've read and in my experience out there i'm sure there's somebody out there that could you know maybe debunk everything i'm saying i don't know so far i haven't met that person and yeah. I, I haven't read that article so um and it, So from your view uh
0: would you say that there was anything positive that came out of that like was there any objective that got achieved or was it really just a misdirection of focus and and resources largely speaking
1: yeah i i could maybe find something uh except for when whenever i start to i I think of friends that i lost overseas in particular in afghanistan Mm, yeah and it all it all becomes white noise it all becomes nonsense it's, it's, it's all mute points. You know, I, 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 just don't, I just don't care. There was no good that, that there was not enough good. This wasn't world war two, you know, where people were willing to sacrifice their lives and people's lives were lost for good cause. You know, that's understandable. That's noble. That's honorable. Um, you know, not to take any honor away from any soldiers that served there or died there. Obviously I think there's some of the best people I've ever met in my life. Anybody who died overseas, Uh, but you know, in terms of who sent us out there, yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm fairly convinced that, you know, I don't think that there was really any good, um, and any good seems to really just be overshadowed by the, the horrendous tragedies that came from that. And not to mention a lot of the, the locals that died, you know, little kids, I I remember meeting a little kid out there, you know, had gotten shot in the leg from one of us essentially, uh, you know. And, you know, he just got caught in the middle of it and he, you know, he's a little kid. I'm telling you, he's like 12 years old, I think. And he'd gotten shot a few years prior and he had just this gnarly gash on his leg, on his shin. And, you know, he was not happy with us. You know, he, I gave him some beef jerky, I remember. And, and he looked at me and he put it in his mouth and then he spit it out at me and then threw the bag at me. And, yeah, uh, I mean. Fair enough, you know. Yeah, you know, at first I was I was pretty mad and then and then he looked at me and said, I'm, a gear, I'm a gear, look, soldier, look, you know, I'm doing. I'm not trying to be offensive with that voice, but that's literally how he sounded. And he's pointing, yeah. he's pointing at the scar on his leg and then he points at the base. He's like, This is from you. And I was like, mm. Oh my goodness. And you know, my heart just like my heart sinks, you know, it's like, man, I just I I can't imagine what this kid has gone through, you know, and he just sees a bunch of, you know americans over there just stomping around and act like they own his home you know it's like that's that's horrendous so what is your thought on the idea that you know these
0: broad-scale conflicts or missions that don't necessarily have a very clear objective there's a lot of human collateral uh civilian collateral uh young people going over there uh for different purposes and reasons. Maybe they just want their college paid for, or maybe they think they're the next GI Joe or who actually knows. Uh, what do you think about it being something that does really just create more adversaries
1: and more enemies
0: of the future?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I think you pretty much just nailed it with that. That's essentially what I see it is doing and, and not just you know, the fabric of, you know, e- even through all this, I'm still a patriot. I still love this country for so many reasons. Right.
0: And. But if you love your country, you're able to see where it's wrong. Absolutely. And where it can be better.
1: Absolutely. Right? 100%. And yeah. so, you know, but, but with that, I also recognize that, um, you know, the, the fabric of, of, of a society of a culture of, of the American culture is, one, it's wearing thin, and we all know that um, for various reasons. But in particular, you know, you take a bunch of veterans, a bunch of people that that put their trust in you, and you put them into a situation like this. And years later, it comes out that a lot of this was lies. Some people still don't believe it, right? A lot of my friends still don't believe it. But you know, you got guys like me that are, you know, reading different things and and you know, looking for truth. And that really, that really burns a lot of people, even guys that didn't serve that come. And, and they're probably hearing a story like mine and they're like, oh man, the government, are you kidding me? Like these guys, you know, whoever, the, the Bushes and the Bidens and the, the Obamas and the, you know, whoever's out there is getting filthy rich off of these guys going out there and, and fighting for what? Like that's just it. It's just to get these guys rich. You know, at least that's a, a take on it. You know, that's a conclusion that some people come to after hearing it's a,
0: it's at least a side effect, if not a main purpose.
1: Yeah. So, so you have, you know, kind of like what you were saying with, you know, you're creating more enemies. Yeah. You know, abroad and at home, that's, that's the unfortunate, that's the, that's the crazy thing is, is it's not just abroad. Yeah. You're, you know, no matter what you do, if you're trying to play world police, whether you're right or wrong, you're going to piss some people off, you know, And, and that's just all there is to it whenever you try to stand up for something, you're going to create enemies. And that just kind of comes along with it. Obviously you can minimize that. um, And that's not something that we've even tried to do, I would say, but you could. And, but, but, you know, when you do it the way we've done it, you create a lot more enemies than you probably should. And you also create, uh, you know, maybe not domestic enemies per se, but um, you, you kind of take away the willingness to fight from a lot of guys, you know, Um, I would think twice before ever, uh, serving in any other campaign that the U.S. was putting on, <laughs> you know. So, so
0: yeah. In some ways, you could almost say that's sort of by design, though. If if we if it is an economy and a profitable one at that, wouldn't you really just want more faraway enemies to go fight and to get contracts and to continue to profit off of?
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. No, one hundred percent. But you also have to contend with you know, well, who's going to go fight if you've you know burn out all your soldiers you know you've burned out all the people that that trusted you and now they no longer trust you you know w- but with the advancements of technology they're going to need soldiers less and less all they're going to need you know during obama's uh time in office you know it was mostly drone wars right mostly drone wars he dropped more ordnance than uh bush did and bush you know if if you were alive long enough was responsible for the, for the shock and awe campaign everybody remembers the shock and awe campaign I dropped it, it just an insane amount of ordinance.
0: I believe the article was in the Atlantic, um, in 2013 and it was called living in terror under a drone filled sky in Yemen. I remember reading that and it, it just broke my heart. I was, I was so appalled by that being a reality.
1: Yeah. Yeah, man. And I'm telling you the they're, they're people. They, these are people, and, and it's so easy for us. I mean, we see it okay, just you know, going on in our political atmosphere right now. We see the demonization of both sides by the either you know by either side, and when you do that, they're no longer people in a lot of people's eyes, and that's how you sometimes even get soldiers to do what soldiers do, is by demonizing the other side, and and it's it's this blanket demonization. Um, I I would say. For me personally, right, the one good thing to come out of all this. Yeah, so I was, it was our very last mission. Uh, We were doing what the other unit had done for us. It was called left seat, right seat. And so what that is, is the incoming unit uh, teams up and first off they go out. And so, uh, you know, whenever there's a mission, 25% of the force on that mission is from the incoming unit and then it's 50% and then it's 75% and then they fully take over. And so we were in one of those phases where this was my very last mission. And we were just doing, uh, overwatch while they were repairing a road. And so with that, um, you know, cause the, the road we were in literally IED alley. I mean, we were in, we were on the east, but we called it, everybody called it the wild west. Um, so there was just IEDs going off all the time. And so the road is fairly narrow. It's one lane highway. And, um, so one IED takes out almost the entire road. And so we were going in to fill in the, the, the pothole that was left. And so, um, while we were doing that, cars were having to pull off, you know, and go around. And so there was quite a bit of traffic out there. And so doing so there's, there's a lip leading up to the road. And so a lot of cars were having a really hard time getting off and then back on. And I remember I'm you know we're sitting out there and I'm just we're just waiting for one of these buses to flip over going off and you know we we're just like, oh we're gonna have to recover this thing And so we're just sitting out there and there's this guy that's you know just back into the left of me and he's doing his thing making bricks right that's what he does he's a brick maker and so he's making bricks making bricks all day and I see him and you know the, the reason that this stuck out to me is because again we had seen these people as just you know they're just like, I don't want to say savages, but we had been lied to multiple times by them. Um, We just kind of been burned You know, some guys that we were even trying to help, they just flat out lie to us. They would sell us out all the time. And so we were pretty bitter towards them. I would say even the civilians. And, and so, you know, he stops what he's doing and he goes over and he takes a shovel and he builds a, a little ramp for these people. I see him, he starts digging it out and he, you know, he takes 30 minutes of his day that he could be, you know, making bricks and making money. And he goes off and to to help all these people. And it was, it seemed so out of character for what we had experienced and been told. And I remember looking at him and I I kept trying to get his attention and I finally was able to, and I gave him a thumbs up and I, I put my right hand over my heart as if to say like, Hey, you know, I, I respect you for that. Um And I, I just remember it, it, that was just so moving to me because it was like, that's You know, growing up with my grandparents, my grandpa would go out for his walk every morning, and he would take in people's trash cans that didn't take their trash cans in. He would mow the neighbor's lawn when the neighbor was too busy, without even saying anything. Uh, The neighbor had to figure out that it was him. I mean, it wasn't hard to figure out. But you know, my grandpa didn't say anything about it. He didn't ask him. He didn't tell him afterwards. He just did it. Uh, If you
0: saw like a little piece of what you admired about your grandpa in this person that you had previously just had a very negative
1: uh assumption about. Absolutely. That's yeah, that that just right to the heart of it. And that, you know, for being my very last mission, um, you know, within my last few weeks in Afghanistan, that changed everything for me. And I mean it was it was in that moment that changed my heart completely. And I I remember thinking to myself, I'm gonna be back here someday or somewhere like this to help these people because, you know, the ones that want help, I want to be able to help them. And um yeah. So, man, that, that was, you know, so so out of all the nonsense, out of all the craziness that went down, I can say that I walked out and I, I stepped away with at least that. And man, it just it opened my eyes and my heart to a group of people that, um, you know, they need hope and they don't want to live in fear anymore. And um, yeah, so yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy. One of the one of wow. my, my favorite memories, I'd say for sure. This conversation ended up being longer than
0: expected, so there will be a second part next week. Thank you for spending some of your valuable time listening to Create Connect Cast. If you'd like to reach out, feel free to email createconnectcast at gmail.com and I hope that we can communicate again soon.